Welcome to Planttopia. I'm your host, David Godori, and I'm a plant pathologist at Cornell University. Any listeners who have never met a real live plant pathologist can be forgiven. We are a very low visibility, but very high impact profession. We protect the world's food supply from disease-causing fungi, bacteria, viruses, and nematodes, all of which want to eat your lunch. This time on Planttopia. It was devastating, a, a very large ecological disaster. First uh, imports of the Asian species happened on uh, Long Island uh, near New York City. They think it might have been another epicenter down in Maryland that came later. It turns out there was one fungus on that those trees that they imported that was a pathogen. That fungus jumped off the Asian species onto the American and caused severe damage and, and basically wiped out the tree. In today's episode of Plantopia, we're talking about a pandemic that hit Eastern North America over 100 years ago. It was catastrophic and fundamentally changed forests of the Eastern US in ways that persist to this day. It was an unmitigated ecological disaster, not just for humans, but for many species. This is the story of the demise of the American chestnut and thanks to a very determined group of plant pathologists, how we are poised after a century of waiting to see its return. Hi, my name is uh, Bill Powell, and I'm a professor at the uh, SUNY College of Environmental Science and Forestry. One of my uh, hobbies is is hiking, and I spend a lot of time in the eastern mountains. So let's just pretend for a minute that I'm on a very high vantage point, and I've got an unobstructed view from New England all the way down to the Smoky Mountains in Georgia. Uh, I can see a mixed hardwood forest of beech, birch, and maple. What is it I'm not seeing? Well, of course, what you're not seeing is the American chestnut. Uh, At one time, maybe about one out of every four trees that you have been looking at would have been an American chestnut, a very abundant tree, a very dominant tree, one of the uh, canopy trees. Um, So it would have been all over uh, that range that you're talking about. How did that happen? How did we lose the chestnut? Well, it's kind of a, a sad story. It's it's a story of um, people started international trade and start bringing in um, Asian species of chestnuts into the United States uh, for good reasons. I mean, they wanted to use it for agriculture and uh, also ornamental purposes. But at the time, this was uh, back in the uh, late 1800s, uh, and they didn't realize at that time when you brought a tree over from uh, the opposite side of the world, you're not only bringing that tree, but you're bringing all the microbes that are on that tree. And it turns out there was one fungus on that those trees that they imported that was a pathogen. It's a very, very mild pathogen on the Chinese or the Asian species of chestnut. But when it came here to the United States, the uh, American chestnut had never been exposed to it and was very, very susceptible. And um, so those that, that fungus jumped off the Asian species onto the American and caused severe damage and, and basically wiped out the tree. And how long did it take for that process to occur? 
Um, in some ways, it was quite rapid, but in other ways, it wasn't. It's was, it was about 50 years or a little bit over 50 years uh, for it to go through the whole range of the American chestnut. Um, you got to realize this is a, a large range. It's always from Maine down to Georgia, uh, went out to uh, Kentucky. Um, so there was around three to four billion of these large American chestnut trees that uh, were wiped out in about 50 years time. So what was the epicenter of the epidemic when it started? Was it near a, a port city? Uh, yes. Actually, the first uh, imports of the Asian species happened on uh, Long Island uh, near New York City. And um, they think that's where the blight originally started. Uh, it was first actually described in 1904 at the Bronx Zoological Park. Um, but it was probably there at least 20 years before that. Um, and then from there, kind of spread out through the rest of the United States. There's probably other importations of the, of the fungus. Um, they think it might have been another epicenter down in Maryland that came later. Um, but, you know, as people brought in these trees, they were also bringing in that fungus. So the chestnut seems to have worked its way into our culture, into the poetry, into popular song, and yet it hasn't been a part of the forests for probably close to half a century now. So it's fair to say that there are a lot of people walking around the United States now who have never seen a chestnut. And that's very true. I mean, except for the the uh, remnants of, of stump sprouts that might be still uh, coming up, most people don't know about chestnut. In fact, when I went to graduate school and I started working on chestnut, that was a new species to me because <laughs> I hadn't seen it when I was younger and I grew up on the eastern uh, United States. Um, so, yeah, it was it – was, um, it uh, used to be a very common tree, but people don't remember it because uh, it ha has been lost for a while, but it's not extinct yet. It's what we call functionally extinct, meaning it's no longer providing the services, the ecological services it, it once did, but it's still surviving as a remnant in the forest, uh, re-sprouting from the, uh, the stumps of the tree, getting the blight and getting killed back down to the ground and going through that cycle over and over again. So is there any hope from that process that resistant chestnuts would come about actually um you know some people discussed that in the past but it, it's not going to happen because the american chestnut um for it to actually produce viable nuts you actually have to have two chestnut trees the trees do produce both uh, male and female flowers but they're incompatible and therefore you need at least two trees and they have to be within oh about a thousand feet it's better to be around 100 feet from each other um, to cross pollinate and so the few trees that can actually make it to uh, flowering stage um, that are still surviving are often too far apart to cross with each other. So if there was any blight resistance kind of naturally um, selected for out there, um, they're not being crossed and, and uh, not actually getting back into the forest. So when you lose a, a species out of a forest ecosystem that is that dominant or that uh, common it's it's a it's an ecological tragedy for that one species but were there any downstream effects from the loss of the chestnut on other species 
Uh, absolutely. It was, it was devastating. Um, a, a very large ecological disaster. Um, there's at least f- uh, five species of moths that have gone extinct uh, because of the American chestnut. Uh, they think there's has to be uh, a, a weevil that has gone extinct um, that was dependent on the chestnut. But we know when the chestnut blight came through, it's not only these things that were totally dependent and went extinct with it, but a lot of animals depended on American chestnut because it produced a very stable mass crop every year. And what that is, is that is basically the nut crop. And so a mass for anything from deer to bear to wild turkeys, um, they all took a hit when the American chestnut was lost. Uh, the trees that have since replaced the American chestnut, uh, mainly oaks, um, they also produce a mass, but their mass isn't consistent from year to year. And the reason why is because they flower early and oftentimes they have um, late frost that will will change the amount of mass being produced or chestnut flowers very late in the summer and almost never gets hit by a late frost and therefore produces a very consistent uh, mass crop for wildlife. It's starting to sound a little bit like COVID-19 for chestnuts. Uh, sort of. worse. <laughs> Yes, it, it was definitely worse because the uh, mortality rate was um, pretty much close to 100% uh, for American chestnut, even though they can survive at the roots. Uh, but the only reason why they survive at the roots, is, well, there's actually two reasons. One is because the uh, microorganisms in the soil, um, they outcompete the chestnut blight fungus, and therefore it can attack the roots. And the chestnut tree does have the ability to sprout from the root collar. So you got this protected roots and root collar that then can re-sprout. But as soon as it starts growing up, um, if there's some blight around and you get a wound for it to get into, um, then those trees are also doomed and get killed back down to the ground. When I was growing up, uh, it was in rural Rhode Island, and my grandfather had a farm. And some of the posts, the fence posts from that old farm, are still there to this day. A few of them were black locusts, but many of them were chestnut. This seems to be an extremely decay-resistant wood, and and because of that, quite valuable. Yes, that's one of the, well, there's a lot of values to the, the wood of chestnut. One of them is straight-grained and easy to work. It's actually a, a light wood for a hardwood, but it is also very rot-resistant due to the tannins, and it's not very porous. Um, so, the, the um, it was often used in uh, outdoor purposes. It was used to make shingles on houses. It was used to make uh, old barns, used for fences, um, used for telephone poles. Uh, anything that's going to be um, exposed to the environment, it, it did very well. Even uh, railroad ties. Um, uh, Walden actually wrote about the chestnut uh, under railroad ties in, in part of his book. Um, but anyway, um, so a very rot-resistant wood. Uh, and, and if it came back, I always say that people would be making all other decks out of American chestnut. I would, I would say so. Um, having replaced a lot of uh, modern pressure-treated wood after about 10 years, something that could stay in an outdoor environment for close to 50 to 100 years would seem to be a, a superior replacement. Yes, I, I agree. And, and therefore, you wouldn't have to do um, all those chemical treatments to the wood. So you've been working on chestnut for quite some time, and there's been a recent breakthrough. Uh, do you want to tell us about that? 
Yeah. Um, so I've been working on it for over 30 years, and um, the whole idea was to make a tree that can coexist with the chestnut blight because you're not going to get rid of the chestnut blight. Chestnut blight fungus also survives on oak trees. So even if all the chestnut trees died out, it would still be here. Uh, so you have to get something that coexists with that. And we finally um, had the breakthrough, uh, found just the right gene uh, that will allow it to coexist with the, with the uh, chestnut blight. Uh, that particular gene uh, is called oxalate oxidase. It's a really interesting gene. It's actually very common in, in a lot of plants. What this gene will do is it actually breaks down an acid called oxalic acid. And it turns out the way the fungus attacks a tree is it will enter a wound, it will colonize that wound, live saprophytically for a while on the dead tissue in that wound, but then it changes its physiology and it starts forming what's called mycelial fans. And ahead of those mycelial fans, it starts producing this acid uh, or a bunch of acids, but this is the main one, oxalic acid, which then kills the tissue in advance. Uh, it releases enzymes to digest that uh, dead tissue and that's how the fungus survives. And it ends up forming what's called a canker. Uh, that's a structure that um, the fungus uh, is, lives in and kills the uh, living tissue, which will that canker will eventually girdle the tree and basically cut off all circulation up and down, killing everything above it. That's interesting because I'm somewhat familiar with oxalic acid as a, as a, in woodworking uh, for removing, in, in particular, phenolic stains from wood. Yeah, it's actually a fairly strong acid. and. Um, you know, there's a lot of different purposes. Actually, beekeepers have used oxalic acid to uh, kill mites in the beehives. Of course, they have to be very careful because it has to be just the right amount, not to kill the bees also. But um, yeah, it's actually a very strong acid. Um, it's actually an acid that we have in our bodies uh, can give us kidney stones and cause all kinds of uh, uh, kidney problems. So um, yeah, so it's an inter interesting acid. Where does the magic gene come from uh, that allows the chestnut to resist the chestnut blight pathogen? So the oxalate oxidase uh, gene is actually very common. It's found in all grains. It's found in many other types of plants. It's also found in fungi. It can found, be found in some bacteria. It's found in some mosses. But the one we used actually comes from wheat. And we purposely chose the one from wheat uh, for two reasons. One is that it's probably the most studied of the oxide oxidase enzymes. And that's always good to have something that's been well studied. And um, it's also in a plant that people eat all the time. As a matter of fact, we can go out and grab some uh, wheat germ from the grocery store and bring it into the lab. We actually do this uh, as a control, and we can throw it into our oxalate oxidase assays, and you got active enzyme right there. So people are eating the active enzyme all the time. So that's another consideration for the reason why we chose this particular gene. Plantopia is brought to you by the American Phytopathological Society, or APS, to honor the United Nations celebration of 2020 as the International Year of Plant Health. Healthy plants can help us solve world hunger, stabilize the world's climate, protect our forests, and add beauty to our lives. Now, back to the show. Bill, the, the new chestnut is still being considered for uh, release to the public. Is that true? 
That is true. So um, we've uh, developed the tree so it'll be blight, we call it blight tolerant because it actually coexists with the uh, the fungus. Uh, it doesn't actually kill the fungus, um, but the fungus no longer kills it. So. Um, yeah, so the, these trees have uh, been tested uh, uh, in different types of environmental tests. We look at things like mycorrhizae colonization. Uh, mycorrhizae are the uh, beneficial fungi that you are found in, on on tree species, and um, found no difference between the uh, modified trees and the non-modified trees. And um, we looked at things like uh, um, insect feeding on leaves. Uh, we even looked at uh, wood frog feeding on leaves. We actually fed it to tadpoles of wood frogs and, again, found no difference. Interesting thing about that particular study was that actually the wood frogs preferred chestnut, whether they were modified or not, um, and uh, compared to things like beech and, and uh, some of the other uh, maple and other tree species that we tested, uh, showing that chestnut actually might have some benefit to that particular species. Um, so, uh, yeah, so we've got all these things, all these tests done. We're now going through the regulatory review process, starting with the USDA. Uh, we're coming up very soon on the open comment period where the public will actually be able to chime in and um, put their comments to the, and questions to the USDA. Uh, and then, you know, we're also working with the EPA and the FDA. So we're being reg highly, highly regulated uh, before these trees go out. But once we get through all this and they get we get approval, um, then we're basically want to get these trees out to whoever wants them. Um, this is going to be a long project. We call it a century project. You know, how do you replace three to four billion of the most abundant trees in the forest? Uh, it's not going to be easy. It's really going to be dependent on the public. And so if they want to plant them, they'll plant them. If they don't want to plant them, they won't plant them. So uh, we just want to make sure that they're available for people who want to plant them. It sounds like a, an enormous project. What's the best strategy to reestablish such a dominant tree uh, throughout its former range? Are there ways that you can establish it in uh, perhaps denser islands of colonization that would then spread? Is it better to disperse it throughout the range? I mean, how is this done? We don't really have a great model for this that comes to mind. Right, and this will actually be one of the first trees that people have actually tried to do that. So we're going to learn a lot from the restoration uh, project itself uh, beyond, you know, making a resistant tree. But how do you actually get a tree back into the forest? And it's going to actually be a combination of things. Like you said, uh, restoration islands where they could spread. The problem is that the chestnut doesn't spread very fast on its own. It spreads about uh, a couple, one to two kilometers uh, uh, every hundred years. <laughs> So, you know, you have an island, it's not going to go very far, um, very fast, which is good because it's not a weed. Um, so it's going to really rely on people then planting them in other places too. And it's really going to, that's why we really want to have the public uh, helping us out because then they can plant them uh, all over the place and try to get this back in. But again, it's not going to be quick. It's, it's going to be like a century to really kind of get back to the numbers that they used to be. Um, so, but we got to start somewhere and this is, this is the beginning. The fact that it's going to take 100 years does not seem like a, a great excuse for not trying. 
Absolutely. And and the other thing about this um, whole journey that we're going to be taking with the American chestnut is that this can also be a model for some of the other trees that are being devastated right now. Um, you know, obviously people know about the uh, ash tree and the emmer ash borer and hemlock and hemlock willadelgid and oaks with sudden oak death and all these different things. You know, um, right now people aren't using these particular tools of biotechnology yet uh, on those trees Um because they're afraid that they're not going to be able to get through the regulatory process with them. But if we can show that, yes, we can do that, we can actually get this tree back into the forest, and it's going to benefit the forest, then it's going to help out all these other trees also that are coming behind um, that are being devastated by uh, invasive species. So, Bill, who are the players in this game? Who are the people or entities that started this whole project to bring back the American chestnut? Well, it really started with uh, public interest. Um, there's a foundation called the American Chestnut Foundation. It's an organization of lay people. The um, larger organization which goes across many states within the range of the chestnut um, has around 6,000 members. Uh, but actually, it was the New York chapter of that organization uh, that came to us first, and that's back in 1989. Um, a couple of the um, members there, uh, Herb Darling and Stan Worsig and Arlene Worsig, they came uh, to our campus at the College of Environmental Science and Forestry, and they um, were working with the larger chestnut uh, project on a breeding program where they would actually cross American chestnut with uh, the Asian chestnut and then back cross trying to get rid of all the traits they don't want while keeping the blight resistant traits. So they came to us, uh, Dr. Maynard and myself, and said, well, can we use some of the more modern techniques? And uh, at that time, uh, genetic engineering was modern in, back in 1989. Um, it's not so much anymore. Uh, so uh, they said, you know, is there a way we can use these techniques to bring them back in American chestnut? And Chuck and I said, well, yes, there is. I mean, these things are being developed, and there's a lot of po good possibility we could do this. And they said, well, how long? And, of course, we said, uh, probably around 10 years. We're thinking that might be the time but of course it took a lot longer than that but we have been successful and we actually have a tree now that is basically a hundred percent american chestnut meaning that it hasn't lost any of its original genes meaning it has all the traits it needs to um actually live in the forest and and produce all its uh normal um uh, values to the to the environment um and it also has now the added uh, blight tolerance so it can survive in the presence of the fungus so we really got our start from public interest and and there's all and they have been with us the whole time uh i, I meet with them a couple times a year on phones and, and at their meetings and stuff and they've been a great support for us How worried are you that the pathogen is going to find a way around this resistance uh, that's that's conferred by the uh, by the genetic modifications? Yeah, that, that's always a question, and it's a good question. Um, well, but the way we are doing the resistance with this um, oxide oxidase is basically we're taking the weapon away from the fungus, and by doing that, we don't actually kill the fungus. And by not killing a fungus, we kind of take away the selective pressure for uh, the fungus to uh, be selected for overcoming this type of resistance. So that in itself kind of makes it less likely to uh, be overcome. But we're not really stopping there. 
Okay. We're actually looking at other genes to stack with this. Um, we're working closely with the breeding program of the American Chestnut Foundation, and we're probably, uh, we actually began doing some crosses with our um, blight tolerant trees and some of their back cross trees to try to stack some of that Asian resistance in with our resistance. Um, we're also looking at other genes. There's a, a whole slew of genes that um, might be very useful. There's um, been, it's been uh, said that poly. Uh, galactoranase is an enzyme that the uh, pathogen uses in conjunction with oxalic acid to form cankers. And there's actually these inhibitors that will inhibit that particular enzyme. And so um, they're called PGIPs. And we're actually trying to clone those in along with the oxalate oxidase gene. Uh, so we're kind of stacking genes to make the even more durable type of resistance. Um, so we're not stopping just with oxalate oxidase, even though it seems to be a very, very good gene. Uh, and it's probably going to last a long time, but we are going to add additional genes um, to this. So, Bill, once the regulatory process is complete, how would the general public go about obtaining one of these trees or more? That's an excellent question. Um, so we uh, at uh, the College of Environmental Science and Forestry can release some trees, but we have limited capacity for making trees. I mean, we could probably release a few thousand a year. Um, so that's why we partnered with the American Chestnut Foundation, who have orchards all through the range of the American Chestnut. Uh, we're actually crossing our trees with trees from different locations so we can try to uh, rescue the local uh, adaptations of those trees as well as increase genetic diversity. And in these orchards in the American Chestnut Foundation, we should be able to produce, you know, into tens of thousands or maybe even hundreds of thousands of uh, chestnuts at some point. And this is not going to be given out um, just to um, things like we'll probably give them out to the Forest Service and things like that, but also to individual people. And we did not patent these trees. So if you got some of these American chestnut trees and you're growing in your backyard or somewhere on your property uh, and you propagate those trees, you can give them out to your neighbors. You can give them out to whoever you want. And the whole idea there is that, you know, these trees are going to be freely uh, distributed so that that would actually increase the rate of uh, restoration. Okay, so pretty much anybody can get these trees. Do the trees reproduce from uh, cuttings? Uh, unfortunately, they do not. They're not like a um, poplar or a willow or something like that. You actually have to uh, grow up. You can do grafting. Um, that's one thing you can do. But uh, basically, you need to get seed. Uh, normally, it takes, if you just plant something out in the field, in the wild, it takes, you know, six, seven, eight years for it to start flowering. Uh, if you did it in an orchard situation where you can really push it, you can get it down to making at least the pollen in two to three years. Um, what we've actually done is we've developed a system in our growth chambers where we use high light and we can actually get pollen in less than a year. So that helps us with our outcrossing program where we're trying to build up genetic diversity and local adaptation. Um, but um, yeah, from, from orchards and stuff, it's still going to take a few years to, uh, to get trees if you're not hand pollinating like what we're doing right now. Is there the potential that you could eventually supply the seed of disease-resistant chestnuts? Absolutely. And in fact, we, we know, so right now we're outcrossing. That means that if we cross to a wild type tree with our blight tolerant trees, um, half their offspring will contain the uh, resistance gene or the tolerance gene. Um, so we have a very simple uh, 
assay where we can actually take either a leaf slice or actually a core from the nut and we can tell which one has actually inherited the uh, oxide oxidase gene and then those could be planted and grown um so uh we can determine which ones actually go out. In the future, once we have enough diversity built up, we'll actually start intercrossing these so that we can get 100% uh, resistant trees from these. So Bill, when did the process for deregulation of the trees actually begin? Um, Well, it actually probably officially started about five years ago because um, one thing we had to do is we had to meet with the regulators and learn the process because um, the regulatory process is never taught to people how to do it. I mean, I'm a professor. uh, I never had that in school, you know, so we had to kind of learn how to do it. We met with them, find out what they needed, uh, actually had to explain to them that we're doing something different, unlike what's done in agriculture. We actually have a tree that we want to go out into the forest because um, this gene is going to allow us to re- rescue and, and, and bring back the American chestnut. Uh, so that was kind of a new paradigm for them. So they had to think, you know, oh, yes, this is different. What kind of test do they need to have? You know, this is not the normal test you do for corn or some other agricultural prop, crop. I mean, that's why we did like the mycorrhizal testing and, and a lot of the insects feeding and 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 things like that we look at leaf litter decomposition um so we had to learn all that stuff and then we actually had to do all the experiments and then we had to write these uh, big documents i mean the the document for the usda is around 300 pages um long and um so but we finally got that all done and now it's the actual review process right now and um so yes probably started about five years ago still probably have a year or two left For more information about the International Year of Plant Health, visit us at plantopiapodcast.org. Thanks for listening. Our show is produced by John Bryce. Thanks also to Mark Gleason, Jim Bradeen, Laura Isles, and Roshni Karate. I'm your host, David Godori, and you've been listening to Plantopia. Plantopia.